As you turn to uh, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, every January, we walk through a, a set of four topical sermons as a church, two that reset and hopefully renew our minds and hearts to connect with God in his word and in prayer so that there's a fresh passion, a fresh intimacy, a fresh consistency in, as we engage in the word and as we engage in prayer. It's just who we are as God's people. And then we take two weeks to examine the topics of racial reconciliation and the sanctity of human life. And as we have said for the last six to seven years that we've done this, it's not a, an idea original with us. Other churches that we love and have learned from uh, have done that before. But we're not just doing what other churches we like do. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. This is also our conviction, also something we're passionate about, something that we want to continue to be a church that finds value in hearing from God how to engage these incredibly contentious issues. Uh, which is just in, just in the time that we've been a church have become only incredibly more contentious just in the last six, seven, eight years. It's amazing. Which gives us even more of a reason as a church to be a voice. Either a voice to help our people navigate these issues or a voice speaking to these issues in the public square. Everyone and anyone talks about these issues of racial division, tensions, strife, injustice, along with abortion and the value of human life. It's only increased. So why would we be silent? Why would we have nothing to say? Or you never hear us digging into these topics. Or us hiding behind something like, we're just going to preach the gospel and not really talk about how it applies to all of life. Another good reason is, uh, for us to engage in these issues is one of the great idols of our culture is the idolatry of politics. Unless you've just engaged and gone off the grid in the, in the realm of politics, I can't blame you because <laughs> it's no fun. Uh, it continues. Elections, elected officials, they're the solution. They're our savior. They're our identity. They are what we are consumed or maybe obsessed over. And anyone who doesn't agree with us politically, they're the enemy. They must be vilified at any cost. And this gives us more opportunity to see political idolatry exposed and crushed. The far left, the far right, crazy ideas. They're doing crazy things if you, if you keep up with the news. And we as a church can say, there's a better way. There's a better way that's not that way. There's a better way for the far left and the far right churches. There's this way of Jesus that's not going to the extremes to accomplish his kingdom's purposes. Jesus wasn't a Republican or a Democrat, and neither is his church. Government has a place in God's created order, but it's not ultimate. Election, elected officials, elections, branches of government, laws have a place in God's work, but not ultimate. We don't have to actually obsess over this stuff. We can be the church and worship Jesus above all which sets us free from being in the back pocket of any political party. We can take off the red or the blue glasses that are the primary way we, that some see the world, and we can celebrate what's, what both sides get right and what both sides get wrong. We can critique. But we are a church, and this is a sermon. This is not a rhetorical speech and debate club. This is not a stump speech. So let's make sure we're focusing our energy primarily not on what Jared says or, or Jesse or Joseph or the latest blog post we've read or book we've read, but primarily on what God's word says. That's where we want to focus. 
So why do we care about racial or ethnic reconciliation or ethnic harmony as a church? Well, because we believe God cares about it. Race, of course, as most people use the term today to speak of different groups of people, is a human construct, not biblical. There's one human race, biblically. The Bible speaks of ethnicities, various nations, tribes, languages, and peoples that comprise this one human race. But in our day, the term race is used in a similar way. But if we want to be biblical, we would talk about the ethnicities of human race. And we believe it's very clear from Scripture that God cares about a unity and harmony among the various ethnicities rooted in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. He places no ethnicity as superior to any other ethnicity. And he desires to show his love to every single ethnic group. God does not look more favorably on one ethnic group than any other ethnic group. Some of you might be saying, well, he chose the Jews, though. What about that? But if you remember, he didn't look around and say, oh, they're the best, the brightest, the strongest, the prettiest. Let me choose them. He's, he was very explicit. I chose you because you were the least. You were the least powerful, the most overlooked the least able to accomplish what I'm going to accomplish through you so that as God grew them into a nation, sustained them as a nation, made them a powerful nation that still exists today, God would get the glory through his work. And it wouldn't be, wow, what a great group of people. They're a great group of people as all groups of people are great groups of people, right? Because he cares and values about all ethnicities. And so the root of racism one ethnic group superior over another. My ethnic group is better, smarter, stronger. The root of racism, this sinful pride and arrogance, is evil in God's eyes and has to be dealt with as all other sins are dealt with, exposed and repented of. And while to some degree this is an an issue in all nations that are made up of different ethnicities, in some nations it carries extra weight. Because there's so much tension and there's such a history of violence and and oppression and even in some nations, genocide. So in South Africa, Rwanda, or even today in China, as China is basically enslaving and imprisoning and sometimes even exterminating people groups that they consider not, they don't even list them as a people group in their nation, as a class of citizens. And of course, because of the past of our nation, There's extra weight to these topics. We, the majority race, enslaved a group of people in in inhuman ways that was only shattered and ended by our most violent war, only to go into a hundred years of legalized slavery called the Jim Crow era, to have that mostly ended with the Civil Rights Act, and to the degree that it's better today, and it is, there are still enormous lingering issues that come from almost 250 years of chattel slavery another 100 years of Jim Crow segregation laws and the subsequent effects and over the last 60 years since the Civil Rights Act. It didn't just go away, just vanish overnight. Like a match, you may blow the match out, but you've lit stuff on fire that's still burning and have even been inflamed to some degree and are being inflamed. So something we still struggle with and suffer because of our past as a nation, and there's more work to do. This is a smidge of context for why we want to continue this work in this conversation. Very few people would actually admit to being, hey, I'm a racist and I'm proud of it. Like a very small percentage of people in our nation. So you're talking like 98, 98.5%, 99% of people would, would say, I'm not racist and here's evidence from my life 
So if that's true, then why do we still have all the, the tensions and the issues? Because there's more work to do. There's more healing that needs to happen. There's more conversations and work that we pray and hope Jesus and the gospel will accomplish. So today, there's a lot of ways we can talk about this, a lot of ways we have talked about this, but today we're going to look at rooting our concern and our work for this issue in the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. We've tied together our January sermon series this year with the Great Commandment found in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and one of them asked an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command is the greatest in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Basically, law and prophets are a way of Jesus referring to the Old Testament. All the Old Testament depend on these two commands. Jesus is being peppered in this chapter with questions from the religious leaders and, uh, trying to entrap him, trying to catch him, trying to expose him. We're almost at the final week of his ministry, his incarnational ministry. One of the last questions they asked Jesus is to rank the most important command out of over 600 Old Testament laws, an impossible task, a common mental exercise among the religious leaders. Maybe it would reveal which rabbinical school Jesus favors over another. Maybe it's a way they could trap him. Who knows? But Jesus blows their mind by revealing the greatest commandment to be something they prayed multiple times a day, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And something they failed to do multiple times a day. Love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> our engagement with God through his word and prayer should flow from our love of God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which, of course, flows from God's love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were lost, Jesus came after us to bring us back, to take us from being the enemies of God to being adopted in God's family. Romans 5, 5 says that the love of God has been poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that when we come alive in Christ, God's love inside of us, now we can love God back in the way he's already loved us. And this love relation exists between our father, between us as kids. And that's what drives our engagement in his word of course we're going to read the word because it's through the Bible that we know who God is. Through the living word, the written word, we know who the living word, Jesus, is. So of course we're going to be a people of the book. It's how God has made himself known. But we're also going to be a people who consistently and intimately and passionately engage with our Father in prayer. So loving God with all that we are drives our engagement in the word and in prayer. We talked about that for two weeks. But then if you love God, you will also love your neighbor as yourself. If you say, I love God and don't love your neighbor, then something's wrong with your love of God. Just like if you say, oh, I love my neighbor, but God doesn't have to be involved in that. I can be nice to people, do kind things for people. Then there's also something wrong with your engagement with people and God because now you're using people to save yourself, to create your own God. So it has to be both, two sides of the same coin. Now, this leads to the question, well, then, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Bible tells us that not everyone is a part of our family, brother or sister in Christ. But the Bible is clear we are to love our neighbor. 
who is our neighbor? Uh, Jesus answered this in a very similar encounter in Luke chapter 10. An expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And, of course, you probably know Jesus goes on to tell this famous story of the good Samaritan. The story about an unidentified man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead in the road. And the Jewish religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, came by and passed on the other side. Like, I'm not getting involved with that. I don't know what's going on. Maybe the robbers are, are hiding and waiting for me. I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have desire. I'm not fooling with him. But then the Samaritan comes along, picks him up, carries him, invests his time, money, energy to see this unidentified man healed. Which, again, was a shocking a story for Jesus to tell the Jews because Jews hated Samaritans. They were ethnically inferior because they were a mixed race people. When the Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC, the Assyrians didn't take the Israelites away and, and have them in exile like the Babylonians would do later. They repopulated the land with a mix of all kinds of ethnic people. So that over the next couple of hundred years until Jesus arrived, there was just tons of ethnicities intermarrying and having kids and families and generations passed. So that by the time of Jesus' day, the Samaritans existed and the Jews hated them. Like they wouldn't even go through Samaria when they would travel. They're traveling by foot, okay? And if, let's say you were going to go from here to Bastrop on foot, and you'd say to yourself, I think I'll go through Schwartz instead of Sterlington because I hate the Sterlingtonites. They're so arrogant. They're so smug. All their fancy restaurants. Just kidding. We love you. <laughs> love you, Sterling tonight. Um, but that's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. On foot, they would travel hours and hours and days longer to avoid even going through their land because they were reviled and despised. And this was a picture to the Son of God of Who's doing a good job of loving their neighbor? A Samaritan loving a stranger who's helpless, marginalized, broken, in great need. He would die without his help. And so essentially, Jesus is saying everyone is, is our neighbor, but even more those who are in the greatest need of help, even if it is what we would call our enemies, someone we despise. I mean, Jesus also said in Matthew 5 to love our enemies. So if you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, there literally is no one that falls beyond this extent of love. Literally no one that you don't have to give this to. And so we love those who don't look like us. We love those who don't vote like us. We love those who don't have the same educational background, financial resources, whose families don't look like our families. We love those who speak other languages, who eat what you might call strange food, who have different customs and culture. If we follow the model of the Good Samaritan, we're not just loving in word, but we're loving in deed, even if it costs us a lot even if you have to sacrifice to love. So how this plays out in your life, well, you can begin to pray and seek the Lord's help in that. You can ask the Lord, what does loving my neighbor as myself need to look like in my life? Like it could be a literal neighbor, like someone you live next to, someone down the street. It could be a coworker, family, friend, a regular place that you shop, eat, or play. It could be a parent of a kid that your kid goes to school with. But you begin to ask the Lord to open your eyes to who your neighbors are, who needs love, that's the key. Who are the neighbors in my life who need love? Who's the one who's sitting alone? 
Who's the one who doesn't have community? Who's the one who's most broken down by life? Who's the one who needs most support? And then get ready, okay? Guaranteed answer prayer opportunity. He's going to help you see this. He's going to give you a desire, and he's going to give you the resources to do something about it. And then you have a choice. Am I going to get outside my comfort zone and do the hard work of loving my neighbor as Jesus equips me, or will I choose comfort? That's your choice. Because he's going to show you. You're going to see. Because he loves to answer this prayer. And he's going to say, go and do these things. And will you go and do it? Will we go? Like, I'm writing this, and I'm thinking, what about you, big boy? You've got to pray the same thing and ask the same questions. I'm like, oh, man, I'm busy, though, God. I'm busy doing your work. So I got I to figure that out for myself and got to be obedient to whatever he shows me, no matter what it costs, no matter where it sends me, no matter who that person is. What can loving your neighbor look like in terms of ethnic issues in our culture? Well, certainly as we interact with other ethnicities, we're loving, we're kind, we're empathetic, we're listening, we're helping as we seek and have opportunity. There may be even opportunity to use your voice or position to speak up, to advocate, to support. Start with the relationships and friendships, coworkers, neighbors who are already in your life who don't look like you. Without adding stress to them, hey, help tell me everything I need to know about loving people who look like you, just begin to ask God for ways to listen and learn and help. Because the reality is being white in America is not the same as being black in America. Like, I don't think that's a shocking statement. Look at the history of our nation. For those who look like me, we don't have the same experiences, stories, or lens through which we see the world. The stories that my family has passed down for generations aren't the same as other people's stories. And loving my neighbor can be at least as simple as putting yourself in the shoes of someone else as much as possible, seeking to empathize and understand. There's gobs of resources out there to do that. Wait, wait, wait. I thought we were supposed to be colorblind. Not see color. Treat everyone the same regardless of color. Well, certainly, if that's what you mean, that can be a good thing. We judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, as Dr. King advocated. But ignoring color or being dismissive of color is practically impossible. And those who say they're doing it are woefully inconsistent. Plus, it's not how the world or the Bible works. Instead, we seek to be, as one author, Isaac Adams, in his book, Talking About Race, put it, color conscience. So colorblind doesn't help, he says. Also being color consumed doesn't help, seeing everything through the lens of race and ethnicity. Instead, he says, we are color conscience, celebrating how we are all fearfully and wonderfully made, showing no partiality while compassionately honoring different experiences. If you look like me and you don't have these relationships with neighbors who look different, then begin to ask God to help you get outside your comfort zone to new places, to build new relationships, to love all the people of our community, and then be obedient. Be obedient to what he shows you, not in a condescending or demeaning way, but I'm, I'm called and created by God, and God has put me here in Washita Parish. That is 59% white, 38% black, 2.5% Hispanic, 1% Asian, and I don't want to live a segregated life. I want to live an integrated life with all the people of this parish. So God, help me to do that genuinely and motivated by love. Let me do that with ears to hear, being slow to speak and quick to listen and learn from a posture of humility and not superiority. 
Like it's pretty well known now, America is browning. We've talked about this before. In the next 30 years, the demographics of our nation are shifting and things are changing. So theoretically, it should become easier for us in the majority race to have more, more multi-ethnic lives because that's what's happening in our nation. As long as we don't go into our closets and just stay with people who look like us. Even churches are shifting in multi-ethnic ways. From 1998 to 2020, non-denominational multi-ethnic churches have tripled from 7% to 22%. That's awesome. Our entire nation is headed in this direction. We should be celebrating this, not being afraid or pushing back on this. We're going to have more and more opportunities to love our neighbors, not just those who look like us, but even those who don't. And this is the second major driving force behind why we continue to have these conversations and, and, and take a look at these issues, uh, more than just one sermon a year, but ongoing conversations throughout the year, <clears throat> and that is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus came in, uh, near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples of all nations. The word for nations there is ethnos, ethnic group, not geopolitical sovereign states as recognized by the UN or the Olympic Committee, but people and language groups. Joshua Project identifies over 7,000 of these. Over 3,000 of these groups are considered unreached or unengaged. That's why we're so passionate about the work getting, to the, gospel, uh, getting the gospel to those who have yet to hear uh, the hardest to reach places, languages that don't have Bible and translation, people living and dying every day, entering a Christless eternity and having never heard the good news of Jesus. And God's plan to remedy that is this, the church, the people of God. His people doing cross-cultural missions, learning language, culture, and customs to go communicate to these people in their language the greatest news they'll ever hear. God loves you and wants you to know me. And yes, we want that to happen to the ends of the earth, but we also want that to happen to the ends of Washtenaw Parish and other parishes around us. We're in a very, very religious part of the world where a vast majority of people claim to know Jesus, but a vast majority of people are not experiencing the joy of a saving relationship with Jesus. And this is true among the black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, those who are well off, and those who live below the poverty line. We want and desire and live to see everyone find this great joy in Jesus always, which means we're not just consumed with living our own lives, but we're praying and thinking strategically, how do we get the good news of Jesus to everyone? It's always been God's heart and desire. In Genesis 12, when he called Abram to follow him and told him, I'll, make you, I'll give you a land, I'll make you a great nation, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And as God grew Abram into a great nation, he would always remind them in a variety of ways, I'm not just blessing you for the sake of you enjoying it for yourself, I'm blessing you to bless others. Psalm 67. You, my people, are intended to be a light to the nations, so I'll draw all people to myself. Specific examples of this happening. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute living in the walls of Jericho, had heard how great and powerful the God of the Israelites were, was, and she wanted to help and be spared so she could join them. 
Later, Ruth the Moabite was told by her Jewish mother-in-law, go home. I'm cursed. Be with your people. Don't be with me. Death is just more death is going to come. But Ruth was loyal and said, no, where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. And Ruth, like Rahab, become not only a part of God's people, but actually become part of the line of descendants that leads to Jesus himself. A Moabite, a Canaanite, non-Jews, Gentiles brought into the people of God. God's showing his heart for all people. Not only that, but women and even scandalous women. God's saying that they're not too far away from me redeeming them and being used for my purposes and being in my family. doesn't matter how far, how broken, how sinful, how despised someone is. God says, I can use them. I want them. I love them. And his people say the same thing, right? Other examples of this throughout the Old Testament, Naaman, the Syrian king, healed of his leprosy by Elijah, the prophet of God. Jonah, sent to preach to the Assyrians, the enemy of God's people. Pagans, he refused because he hated them so much. They're not Jews, they're pagans. And he runs and he hides. He's asleep in the bottom of a boat. He's not in turmoil. He's perfectly happy with his decision. He's sleeping. This is a great choice, running from God. And God sent a storm, and God sent a fish, and God sent Jonah to Nineveh against his will. He begrudgingly preaches the message of repentance. God spares the city, and then Jonah goes and sits outside the city and sulks. I knew you'd do it. I knew you'd save them. And you should have just killed them. But we think Jonah repented of that because we have the book of Jonah. He shared the worst, he's the worst, the worst prophet of God, his worst experience. So that we would know the heart of God was not just for the Jews, but for the nations. Fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. All through his ministry, he wasn't just loving and serving and healing the Jewish people, but also the Gentiles. And in some ways, the fame and word about Jesus spread faster among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, than it did among his own people. The opposition Jesus faced wasn't from the Gentiles, but from the Jews. Rome would have never gone and looked for Jesus to crucify him if it wasn't for the Jews bringing him on a platter. Jesus dies for our sins. He's buried and rises from the dead on the third day with this exclamation point. It's all true. Everything I've said is true. All the promises of God are yes because of me. He is God, the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He spends 40 days teaching his disciples about God's kingdom. Before he ascends, he gives them this commission in Matthew 28 to make him known, to make disciples among all peoples, baptize them, teach them. He tells them in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the Holy Spirit falls in Acts 2, and his disciples are preaching the gospel in the language of all the various people that are gathered in Jerusalem for the festival. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel where God had divided the people with language as judgment for their pride and arrogance, now he will use language to make a people one in him. The church, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, all people. And this all culminates this beautiful scene from Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. This is what eternity will look like. One big family of diversity, 100% unified because of the Lamb. And our desire is to see that happen now as much as possible. Diversity and unity centered around King Jesus. 
We know it's going to happen. We know in some places it's already happening, and we long and pray for it to happen more and more in our city, in our region. Not because we're after diversity for the sake of diversity. There's plenty of places you can go and have a diverse gathering, restaurants and schools and, and ball games and Mardi Gras parades. That happens all the time. But a diversity that happens as a result of mission so that it's built around King Jesus so he gets the glory for what makes us one family. Not just showing up in a room and, oh, we've got some different faces here, but living life together, sharing the burdens of life together, loving and serving one another, grieving with one another, weeping with one another, rejoicing with one another. The reality is we were all once far away, but God has brought us near. We were all outsiders that God has made insiders in Christ Jesus. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2. Specifically, the context of Jew and Gentile, so much division between those ethnicities, such a struggle to get them to get along in the early church. And Paul was addressing it over and over, reminding the Jews, they belong just as much as you belong. And reminding the Gentiles, you belong too. You are also God's people. Listen to how it's put by Eugene Peterson in the message, Ephesians 2, verse 11. But don't take any of this for granted it was only yesterday that you, outsiders to God's ways, had no idea of any of this. You didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of the rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel's. You didn't have a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. But now, because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you, who were once out of it altogether, are in on everything. That's us. We get to share in all of it. It's all of our story now, too. The Messiah, verse 14, has made things up between us so that we're to now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall that we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. And he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using all of us, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as a cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God. All of us built into it a temple in which God is quite at home. Paul is speaking to every single one of us. This is who you were and this is who you are now. No longer strangers but home. If you're here this morning, you've not trusted in Jesus and come home, please, there's nothing more we'd love to, to talk to you about before you leave and how to come home. Calling out to Jesus for repentance and faith. Calling out to Jesus to bring you home and make you alive in him. 
Last thing, Derwin Gray pastors a multi-ethnic church in Charlotte, Transformation Church. He writes in his book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, five things we can do as a church to see this good work happen. I'll just list them. and Trust the supremacy of Christ. Engage in difficult conversations. Collectively mourn injustice. Display gospel character. And live a reconciler's life. And he wrote this prayer he calls a declaration of reconciliation. So I want to close with this as our prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, blessed king of the universe, in your eternal son, Messiah Jesus, the king of kings, the one who is grace upon grace, and who created a new race made up of all the human race, through his life, death, and resurrection, in his name, by the Holy Spirit's power, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices dwelling places of God. King Jesus, we affirm that you purchased a richly diverse people for your Father, a people declared righteous by your blood, a people who are one yet many. Your blood binds us to you and to each other as a beautiful mosaic. We worship you by loving one another. We are the family of the redeemed. We belong to the King We pledge our allegiance to King Jesus, the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. May we live from and guard the unity Jesus secured on the cross. As we grow in holiness, spirit, empower us to reflect Jesus more and more. May the world see that we love Jesus by the way we love each other. May we treasure our brothers and sisters more than we treasure economic interests, political affiliations, fears our cultural customs. In your name, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.